you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 13. We're going to be looking at verses 44 to 46. Matthew 13, 44 to 46. Let's read God's Word together. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and sold all that he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Let's pray together. Father, thanks for your word this morning. Thank you now for our time before it, and we pray that our meditations on it and the words of my lips concerning it would be acceptable in your sight. And may these words be life to us and good for us as your people. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're continuing a series this morning. And uh, the series is Through the Parables of Jesus, thinking about what is it that Jesus really said. And by now, if you've been here for at least a couple of weeks, you're perhaps beginning to notice a theme. And that is many times when Jesus uh, introduces these parables, when he talks about the parables, he's talking about the kingdom of God. And this morning is no different. He introduces this parable and he tells us that the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, those are synonymous. Um, Those are synonymous concepts. He's telling us about the kingdom of God, that sphere in which God rules and reigns. What is it like? Now, if you have professed faith in Christ, if you are a Christian, you are a citizen of the kingdom of God. You are, as it were, in the kingdom of heaven. And that means you live and you operate inside of that realm. And so in this parable this morning, he is telling us something or some things about the kingdom of God. At least three of them we're going to zero in on. As we think about the kingdom of God, you'll see here in this parable, it's first, diverse residence. Second, we're going to see its matchless worth. And the third thing we're going to see is its expulsive power. Not explosive, expulsive, okay? <laughs> a little bit of a, a tongue twister. So let's talk about its diverse residence. You're going to notice in this parable that there are two individuals that are mentioned. The first one is an individual, a man who goes out, and he's he is in a field of some description. And while he's there, he discovers a treasure. Now, as you think about that, he's he's doing something with the ground. He's planting. He's somehow he is coming in contact with the ground, which leads us to believe that this first individual was probably some sort of a laborer in the field. He he had some sort of contact with the field such that in that contact he makes, he uncovers a buried treasure. Now, we don't have a lot of contact with buried treasure. (laughs) 
It's not something that's familiar to us. We, we understand the concept. Perhaps when you were a child, um, you drew out a treasure map and you went and buried something and then you tr- retraced the steps. I don't know if you've done that. But I did that when I was a kid. And, um, and, so, and so if someone had the map, they could trace the map to the location of the treasure and find it. We've all kind of, we have that idea. In this society that Jesus lived in, it was not uncommon for someone who had a little bit of wealth, who had, who had acquired some possessions, to take those and to place them out in a field in a buried treasure. Essentially to take their, to take these worldly possessions that had great value to them, to go out into a field and to bury them. It was not uncommon. And the reason it wasn't uncommon was because of the day and age in which they lived. There was conflict all around. There were the ravages of war. You never knew when a marauding army was going to sack your village, your town, and carry, if not, you know, all of your possessions and you off, um, then your children and everything else. So it was not uncommon when people came on to wealth for them to go and to bury their goodies out in a field, thereby preserving them were something terrible like that to happen. Now, in the story, in this first story, this man is out, he's in a field, and while he is in that field, he uncovers this buried treasure. So what do we learn about him? Well, we learn probably that he's not a wealthy individual, Wandering out in fields, maybe working in that field, leads us to believe he's probably just a common day laborer. So we learn a little bit about this first individual that Jesus is telling us about. The second individual we find out is an actual merchant of pearls. Ah, this gives us an indication that this individual probably had at least a little bit of wealth. And here's why. The area of Palestine was not known for its pearls. So if you were a pearl merchant in this day and age, you were most likely a traveling merchant because the Persian Gulf and the Indian Ocean were the locations primarily from which people were finding and mining and uh, diving for and, and gathering pearls. So those are the locations in which pearl merchants went to find their wares. And if you had money to travel like that, you had a little bit of wealth. And so right here at the beginning of the parable with two individuals, we are learning about the kingdom of God. And we, we're learning that it has diverse residents. Just in those two individuals, what we learn is that the kingdom has in it rich and poor. We know, we know that, that the kingdom is extensive in the kinds of people that it reaches because when we get to the book of Revelation, what do we find out? Well, we find out there that, that gathered around the throne, there are people from every tribe, every tongue, every color, every conceivable, imaginable person is represented once you get to the final end game. And so Jesus is telling us here very simply at the beginning of this parable and the two types of individuals There is diversity in the kingdom of God. There is diversity in the kingdom of God. Look around in this room. We are not terribly diverse in this room. 
We have young, we have old, we have some in between, we have, we have tall, we have short. In, in other ways, however, we're not terribly diverse. But, but that's because of the community in which we live in. And what happens sometimes when we're not terribly diverse in our groupings together is we forget that the kingdom is a diverse place. That God is busy calling to himself people from all over the globe. And friends, you and I can't forget that. Just because we look around and we're very um, uh, homogenous sort of a group doesn't mean that it isn't the case that the kingdom is not like that. And you and I would do well to remember that God is indeed calling all sorts to himself. And to remember that when we're out in the community and we're rubbing shoulders and we're with people, to never discount. Are you with me? To never discount folks and our sharing of the gospel with them, but remembering that the kingdom is incredibly diverse and we never, ever know. We have no idea who God is calling to himself. No idea. Charles Spurgeon often talked, if he, if he knew, if there was a yellow stripe down, or if there was a stripe down our back in which we could go and lift up their coattails and say, ah, the one, then I would do that. But I don't know that. And so, therefore, I am generous with the gospel. Listen, out in the world around us, the gospel is most powerfully at work in people who look nothing like you and I. It's South America, it's Africa, it's China. The gospel is exploding in China. The the Presbyterian church alone in Brazil dwarfs us by about a million. As Presbyterians alone, just just that small slice of the pie. And so folks that don't speak like us, who don't live like us, who don't dress like us, whose skin color is not the same as as ours, are coming to faith the world over. The gospel is in decline. The church in the Western world is in decline. There is no doubt about that. But it is expanding rapidly in the world around us. And so we need to have a... um, We need to have that kind of mindset when we are thinking about the gospel. And so Jesus tells us just very simply here, yes, the residents of the kingdom of God are diverse. They are rich, they are poor, they are black, they are white. The Apostle Paul said they are neither Jew nor Greek. They are coming together, and as they do, they eschew all their all the other um, denominators, and they come together under the gospel banner. Years ago, I had an opportunity. I was in Gink, Belgium, and um, I took a, a group of students there. We did Muslim training in Gink, Belgium, to then go to London and do somewhat similar things that our team recently did in New York City with Muslims, sharing the gospel. But I'll never forget being there in an auditorium with a, a group called Operation Mobilization, OM, who are all over the world. And there in that auditorium, there were people from all over the planet worshiping at the same time. Different languages, all sorts of things. And it was just a a small glimmer, a picture, if you will, 
of that final day when we all gather around the throne. And so, friends, don't sell the kingdom short. It has diverse residents, and you need to be thinking about that when you're thinking about the kingdom and praying for the kingdom and praying for our church, that the Lord would add to our number some diversity with respect to those sorts of things. Here's the second point that I want you to notice, and that is that the kingdom lays out, or this parable lays out for us the matchless worth of the kingdom. The treasure that is found in the field and the pearl that is landed by the merchant both represent the kingdom. And in both instances, it tells us that the kingdom has no equal when it comes to its value. No equal when it comes to its value. That means in the parables, the individual found the treasure in the field. What does he do? He goes and he liquidates Everything he has, he turns it into cash so that he can go purchase the field, thereby gaining the treasure. Now, don't read too far into that. (laughs) Um, You may read other things. Just understand what he located, what he discovered in that treasure was more valuable than everything else he had. Everything else became nothing. The treasure became everything. Now, if you've got your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. And I want you to see the Apostle Paul say something very similar. Because we begin wondering, okay, all right, what what does that mean that I would go liquidate everything? I mean, in this parable, I mean, am I supposed to go sell everything I have? Let's look at the way the Apostle Paul puts it in Philippians 3 as he talks about this idea. In Philippians 3, you may have a a heading there that sounds something like this, no confidence in the flesh. But the Apostle Paul says this in verse 2, Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. Verse 3, for it's we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. And then he says this in verse 4, Though I myself have reasons... For such confidence. If anyone thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. And then beginning in verse 5, he starts listing out these things that in his day and age would have, was, it was believed they credited him to God. That is, they recommended him to God. These were things he could go to God and say, look, here are, here are my qualifications. And this is what he said, verse 5 circumcised on the eighth day. I was of the people of Israel. I was the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, I was a Pharisee. As for zeal, I was persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, I I was considered faultless. Verse 7, but whatever was to my profit, I considered lost for the sake of Christ. Verse 8, and here it is. What, what is more, I consider everything lost comp- compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake, what? I have lost all things. Do you see, do you see the similarity in what Paul is saying? Paul said, I had all of these things to my credit. 
You can list off your own list. You have your own, you have your own internal list that you've probably been keeping since you were a kid. And sometimes you rattle those off. When that gentleman, when Dave Nickerson asked me, did I know Jesus in that laundry room in 1989 in Ankara, Turkey? The first thing I said was, my parents went to church. And they took me to church. And Dave looked at me and he said, that's not what I'm asking you. I'm asking you how you know you know the Lord Jesus. I'm not asking you if you went to church. See, I started rattling off my credentials, my list, my resume. Listen, let me ask you, do you have a list? Do you have some internal list? Do you have things that you believe commend you to God? Do you have things that in your life that allow you to maybe look down your nose or, or something that other people, that, that you think are give you some substance in your life? Paul says, I had all of these things that gave me substance in my life. But when I came to Jesus, what? I counted them as loss. I put them away. That's the language of finding the treasure in the field. And that is, I found this gospel, and it was more valuable than all of that stuff, and so I put it away. He goes on to refer to all of that stuff as what? Garbage. It's a word that if I were to use it, you'd probably toss me out, okay? Dong is, we use another word, but you got the idea. And so the kingdom has a matchless worth. Nothing compares. And when it was found, everything else begins to fade away. And that's what we see in the parable. Kingdom of heaven is a treasure hidden in a field. When the man found it, he hid it again. He went in his joy. He sold everything he had. He liquidated his life to buy it. And then there was a merchant, a pearl merchant. And when he found it, he went and sold everything that he had. Now imagine, what did he have? He's a pearl merchant. He had amazing pearls, probably from all over. And he went and he liquidated them all in order to have that one pearl. That's the idea. The idea is that in our lives, nothing compares. Nothing comes close to that thing. But yet, think about this. Sometimes we believe that those are the things that are bringing us the joy that we want. But look. Verse 44. When he found it again, When he found it, he hid it again, and then in his what? His joy. See, we think that by liquidating, by pushing those things to the edge and letting the gospel be the center in our lives, we think that we give up joy. Because because the gospel, because the Bible is all about do's and don'ts. It's all about restricting my pursuit of joy and happiness. But what Jesus tells us is that this man liquidated everything and in his joy he went and he purchased the gospel. There is great joy in the kingdom. There is a delight that outstrips everything else. But isn't that what we hear about wealth? Isn't that what, isn't that what we hear about wealth? If, if, if I went out and I asked ten people, what do you want most in life? Nine out of ten would say, I want 
I want to I have enough money that I don't want to have to worry about life. And then if you said why, you, they would say because I, that's going to make me happy. If I don't have all of the pressures and the strains and all of those sorts of things on me, then I will be happy. I'll never forget riding with a guy. I'm riding down the road one day with a guy. He was terribly depressed. He was distraught. He had all sorts of stuff going on in his life. And finally I looked at him and I said, what would make you happy? And he looked at me and he said, to have a bright red convertible Mustang would make me happy. He had no clue what would make him happy. He really believed it. It sounds comical. It was terribly saddening because he believed in his heart of hearts that that would bring him some joy. That's what the world tells us. Let me ask you, you remember the story of the rich young ruler? We read about it. We talked about it last week. He came to Jesus. He had great wealth. When he went away from Jesus without the gospel, what does it say? He went away sad. Why did he go away sad? Because he had great wealth and he didn't have the gospel. He didn't have that inner that inter security. He didn't have that relationship with God that he knew he needed that would bring him great joy. And he didn't quite know how to get there. And he had great wealth. Jesus tells us here in this parable that when the kingdom was discovered, there was great joy associated with it. Because it has a matchless worth you cannot find elsewhere. Let's look at the third point. It's expulsive power. Expulsive. It's it's pushing to the edges, to the margins, those things in life. This is this point's not unique to me. None of these Nothing's ever unique to me, but this point specifically isn't. Um, Derek Thomas, I heard, used this, and I think he got it from some guy in Scotland or Ireland over there on that little island. But, but he talks about the expulsive power of the gospel. And that is that when, when we have that treasure, when we have that pearl of great price, and it becomes the center of our lives, that begins to push to the margins other things in our lives. That is... It it, it occupies more and more of the center of gravity in us. Tim Keller often talks about an idol. An idol is a good thing in our lives that becomes an ultimate thing in our lives. That is, it takes the center of our lives over. And what we're seeing here in this parable is that what what became the center of their life was the kingdom of God, the gospel. Jesus became the center of their lives. And when Jesus becomes the center, he pushes other things to the fringes. Here's a, uh, here's a great illustration by C.S. Lewis that he uses in Mere Christianity. Listen to this. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He is getting the drains right and he's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. And you knew that those jobs needed doing and so you are not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? 
the explanation is that he is building a quite different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. And he intends to come and live in it himself. Think about that. In both of these parables, you have individuals, neither of them knew when they came on to the treasure and when they stumbled on the pearl of great price, what exactly it would mean for their lives. They weren't looking for it. They didn't understand that that treasure that they found in the field was going to completely revolutionize their lives. They, they, they didn't, he wasn't in the field looking for it. He wasn't searching for the, this pearl that would completely obliterate his desire for any other pearl and become the center of it all for him. And yet that is exactly what happened. Now listen, how often do you think we come, we hear the gospel, we come to faith in Christ, and it's a little bit at first. We give a little. And we expect to get a little. Our lives merely maybe need an adjustment. We need tweaking. We need just a little bit of help. But when we come to faith, what, we, what happens is we realize more and more. Listen, Martin Luther often talked about the further he grew in faith, the further he understood Jesus and the gospel, the more desperate he saw his circumstances. And so as he increased in his knowledge of grace, he increased in his knowledge of what great need he had in his life. And so thereby, near the end of his life and near the end of our lives, it won't be the case that we'll say, wow, look how great I am. No, it will become a situation of look how desperate I am in my life and how thankful I am for the gospel. There's a guy, his name's J. Gresham Machen. Go home and and go home and Google him. He's the father of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, which is a sister denomination. They've been primarily in the north and somewhat out west from us. But he was a professor at Princeton Seminary. He taught Greek. And when Princeton began to go liberal in the early 1900s, he broke away uh, around late 1920s, early 1930s, and he founded Westminster Seminary up in Philadelphia. Wonderful man. At the end of his life, he caught pneumonia. He was traveling. He was in the Midwest. He caught pneumonia. And, and he cabled back to his good friend, another professor at, uh, named John Murray at Westminster. And this is what he cabled. At the end of his life, he's on his deathbed. It's the last thing that he communicated. And here's what it was. So thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. That's his last known cable, his last known communication to his good friend. He never married. So thankful for the active obedience of Christ, no hope without it. A man well into his years, a man who knew the gospel well, and at the end of his life, what did he say? Look how good I've done. I've done some really great stuff. No, he said, I'm so thankful for the work of Jesus, because without it, I would be lost. Friends, that's what happens when the gospel takes the center. Is it pushes all of that other stuff to the fringes in our lives. It, it allows us to be free um, within our relationships. To not care so much about the, what people think about us. 
Why? Because when the gospel takes over the center of your life, it matters most what God thinks about you. It truly does. And now there's no fear of man as it's pushed to the fringes because the center is the gospel. And the gospel truth is that God is pleased with me not because of anything I've done or will do, but because of what Christ has done for me. And so when we come to this very simple parable, it really pushes us right to the point of what the Apostle Paul said in, first, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 19 and 20. It allows us the freedom in our lives to say, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Only the pearl of great price, only the treasure found in the field, only the gospel taking that center place in our lives will ever allow us to live life that way. For me, to live is Christ, meaning it's the central focus of it all. And were I to die, well, that would be great gain. Are you there? Is the gospel the center of your life in that kind of way? I pray that it is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. Thank you for this awesome gospel truth, this kingdom truth that Christ Jesus brought to us. Simple as it is, Father, I pray this morning that the treasure has been found and the pearl has been discovered. And if it hasn't, that you would be at work. And Father, if, there's, if there are folks here who don't yet know that joy, who don't yet and have not yet experienced that freedom, Father, would you be at work in their hearts and lives? Would you be at work in their, in their minds, drawing them to yourself, breaking that, their heart open that the gospel would take root? We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.